back, Real Estate Investors, to the Future of Real Estate Podcast Show. I'm your host, Ellis Hammond. Today, we have Hunter Thompson as our guest on the show. Hunter is the principal of ASIM Capital, a real estate investment firm that really allocates capital from investors with experienced operators. He's invested in really all the major food groups, multifamily, self-storage, mobile home parks, even Bitcoin mining. And today, we talk about what do you do if you have 100K today with all that's going on in the economy where should you look to place that? What are the trends that he's really following in order to make an educated and sophisticated bet on where to really grow wealth, where the real estate actually gives you a chance in today's market? I think you're going to really enjoy this episode. Let's get into the show. But first, a word from our sponsor. Hey, if you're a credit investor, listen up. I have an exciting opportunity to share with you. My company, Symphony Capital Group, just locked up our largest multifamily deal to date, a 200-unit multifamily apartment complex, 95% occupied, cash flows day one in Dallas, Texas. We're so excited to share this opportunity with our investor base. And if you're serious about building wealth through multifamily real estate, if you want to diversify you know, away from the volatile stock market and you want to intentionally begin to multiply your wealth through value-add real estate, then go to symphonycapitalgroup.com forward slash invest and sign up as a credit investor to learn more about our next real estate deal. This is only for a limited time. This will only be available for the next 60 days, depending on when you're listening to this. So go to symphonycapitalgroup.com forward slash invest to learn more. Hunter, welcome to the show, my man. Honor to be on, buddy. Wow. Uh, this is, uh, guys, we got some big things to talk about. A lot happening in the market right now. Uh, a lot of fear out there, and uh, which is really interesting, Hunter, right? Because nine days ago, everyone was buy, 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 buy. And it's crazy what happens in 30 days. There's been some really important economic data points. And as you know, it's someone that's interested in having these conversations. Economics is something that ties everyone together. And we all learned those lessons in 2008. You can be really good at your particular niche and only be focused on the East Coast of Florida and talking about the demographics and all the reasons Florida is amazing. And then all of a sudden, 2008 happens and says, you guys haven't been paying attention to the bond yields. You guys haven't been paying attention to the money printing. You guys haven't been paying attention to leverage points of banks. And you can get slapped even if you are in a great market with great tailwinds. So we're going to talk about economics today. So uh, let, let me just, let's, let me start this way. Cause there are three questions I want to ask probably all we have time for today. Like for maybe those who are not like you, who study the data and look at the market, they're just kind of living their normal everyday life. Right. And they're investors and heard how great the real estate market was for so long. And all of a sudden there's so much fear and maybe they're seeing interest rates rising. Let me just ask you a simple question. What has actually changed in the last little while Right. I mean, I think that's a question that maybe a lot of people are asking. What what's happened? Okay. So I want to keep this brief, but it it's a really good question because I'm about to bounce the outline. So I was not in the financial sector in 2008, but it got my attention. 2008 happened. I thought, okay, blood is in the streets. I've heard all these quotes by these famous billionaires that I should be focused on this right now. And so that's right when I graduated college. And I started focusing on stocks and bonds, just like most people knew to focus on and started to learn about investing in Apple and blue chip stocks and the dividends were low, but still made sense, et cetera. And then something happened in 2010 that almost no one talks about that I feel like really changed my life. And that is the European debt crisis. 
And the reason I say that is that I could see on a daily basis, massive 600, 700 point intraday swings in the Dow Jones. And it didn't matter if you were quote diversified in Apple and Johnson and Johnson, everything was going completely crazy. And all of a sudden everyone was talking about, like I said, these grease bond yields of all things. And I realized like I don't have a hundred employees, but if I had a hundred Wharton grads, Harvard Business School people working 24 hours a day, maybe one of them would have said, hey, look, Greece is over leverage, but I wouldn't have even taken them seriously. Even with a massive unlimited infrastructure, I couldn't have pinpointed that as being a potential risk. And so I tried to learn a lesson there, which is I need to find something that is predictable that a small lean and mean company can conduct accurate due diligence on that is based specifically on supply and demand and simple supply and demand. And that is exactly what led me to real estate. And so to answer your question, what's changed? Market sentiment is fickle, but there is an incredible supply and demand imbalance in the United States that creates a massive tailwind. And I think uh, the case I'm gonna make today is that this could be the opportunity of a generation with mm. what's going on over the last couple of months and, and the last 24 months in particular. Yep, yep, absolutely. And it's amazing how things can just shift. I mean, when I look at fundamentally, it's exactly like the, this, the bigger issue of supply demand, nothing really has changed except, okay, yeah, we have a war going on and that's changed a lot of the sentiment in the market. So let's talk about your economic outlook. Let's talk about the, the indicators that you're looking or following as you're making investment decisions, because this absolutely applies. And by the way, I've read Hunter's bio already in the intro, but Hunter, CEO, principal of ASIM Capital, um, you've invested in, in multiple asset classes across the last decade. And so a really good uh, person to have on the show who just sees a lot of data, has looked at a lot of different asset classes. So excited for you to answer this question, Hunter. So the reason that people are talking about interest rates is because it looks like the Fed has made a lot of statements to suggest that they're going to rise. And without going too much on a tangent, you know, looking at the last hundred years of interest rates, I actually think they're going to continue the trajectory down and to the right. But I recognize, especially in the short term, that they may rise. And the reason for this is that there's a lot of concerns about inflation. So we got to marry the two and talk about them together. A lot of people think that inflation and real estate kind of have this relationship where it's a net wash in the sense that real estate is a hedge against inflation. Real, you know, Inflation goes up by 4%, real estate goes up by 4%. That's what a hedge against inflation is. But the reality is inflation is actually a massive tailwind to real estate owners. Not if you're a renter, not if you're a consumer, but to a real estate owner. And I'll tell you why. Yes. Asset values increase with inflation when that money printing takes place. But what else happens is that let's assume, you know, you're buying a big property right now. I've bought properties recently. Usually you're trying to buy an asset that's undervalued. You bring rents up to market rates as the business plan is implemented. Once that's happened, if you're being conservative, you should assume that rates will increase by about the same rate as inflation. And that would be the same as expenses, meaning that if inflation is at 4%, your rental increases should take place at 4% after the business plan has been implemented and expenses should increase at 4%. And that would be like a net wash if there was a 50-50 operating expense ratio. 
But most of the deals that you and I invest in, we're talking about 41%, 38% in self-storage, 35%. So what does that mean? There's a big delta accruing between the top line, bottom line, and basically NOI is what real estate is traded on. So it's not a wash. If the, in, if the top line increases by 5%, and that's 65% of the whole situation, and only the bottom line is increasing by 5%, but it's 35% of the whole equation, the net is significantly increasing and real estate trades on a multiple of income. So that is a really significant data point to look at, but there's something else that's maybe even more important. Um, it's okay if I run into this real quick because I wanna talk about inflation, we can change this. Absolutely, yeah, keep rocking. The thing that I think not enough people talk about is that real estate is almost exclusively purchased with debt, somewhere in the range of 60 to 80% of the purchase price, if not more in some markets, is debt finance. When you are a holder of debt, the bank is having their capital be eroded by inflation. But as a borrower, the amount of money you have to pay back is being eroded by inflation in your favor. So much so that let's say that this current rate of inflation continues, 8% per year inflation. If you buy a $15 million property, put $5 million down and there's $10 million of debt financing, you've borrowed $10 million. Over a 10 year period, the purchasing power of that $10 million would be cut in half if inflation is at 8%. Meaning that rates are net negative right now on a real adjusted basis. If inflation is at 8% and you're borrowing money at 5%, the bank is paying you 3% to buy a quality asset in a booming market of which you can implement some value add and basically print money in today's economic environment. Now, that's not the only data point I want to talk about today, but those are some really important things. How much, I think that's a great point. Does that impact the deal, let's say, if the rate is floating versus, let's say, you lock in a rate? Really good point. And something that's happened recently is that we have used floating rate debt. I don't exclusively use it. I'm a big proponent of diversification. I've argued with some really high level people about this topic. And because they disagree with me and I don't really know who's right, I want to get a good combination of both, but I don't want to be only fixed rate. And I don't want to be only floating rate because it's going to you know, give me some problems one way or the other. But when you go floating rate, you know, having a rate cap is important. The problem is that the purchase of these rate caps has, you know, 5X, 7X in some situation it used to be $50,000. Now it's $350,000 for the same purchase. So the way that we underwrite in this environment is what does the return profile look like if the rate cap is hit and all things else are equal? But it's not likely that all other things else will be equal. If rates increase and the rate cap is hit, other things are going to be changing. Maybe the, the cap rate will also expand. So looking at it on the sensitivity analysis, if I can get comfortable, then let's say hit you know, an 8, 9, 10% IRR if things go really sideways, I'm going to be intelligently participating in this space because if I'm not participating, what am I doing? Getting hammered by inflation, just like the bank is. Yeah, great point. And meaning to, to that is we don't know, but the sensitivity in that if interest rates do go up, if cap rates do go, I mean, meaning we're, we're when it hits the fan, right, is can we still protect our capital? 
And I think, you know, we both are a follower of Dr. Lindemann. You had him on the show, and I love what he says here. He says, real estate right now, and I love how he says this, is the only place that gives people a shot at building real wealth. Because nobody can really actually predict, but what's the alternative, Hunter, right? And that's what I, I think that's our pitch is like, at least we have a shot at really building and growing significant wealth in this run. And, for, you know, we want to absolutely be protecting our downside, but it gives us a um, it gives us a shot at something significant. So where do we go next, man? Do you want to talk about the indicators that you're looking at to follow some of this or what's important here uh, to, to, to share with our listeners? So, so far, if you don't know much about me, which trust me, I'm trying to get to make sure you know, but let's say this is the first time you've ever met. It may sound like I'm a permable and, and that, that argument that I just made can be, you could buy in every single stage of the cycle, et cetera, et cetera. And that is totally not me. I've got some really serious caveats that I can talk about at the end of this. But basically what I want to say is I'm obsessed with economics because I know how wrong this can go. I wasn't in the business in 2008, but I started going to meetings in 2008, going to meetings. You've heard that phrase before, like Alcoholics Anonymous. That was kind of like the same exact vibe as going to real estate meetings in 2008 and nine. Everyone had lost their shirt and maybe they had a problem with alcohol as well, trying to deal with that stuff. I saw that stuff firsthand, like firsthand. What happens when you build up a multi $10 million net worth and then get it evacerated, eviscerated by banks, you know, bankruptcy, et cetera. So I just want to say that caveat, but looking at this, like holistically, the consumer is going to get squeezed. The rich are going to get richer. The poor are going to get poor. There's going to be a very wide divide between the haves and the have nots. And I want everyone that's listening to this to be on the winning side of that equation. So we've got to learn how to intelligently participate and not let fear get in the way of us accomplishing our goals. So here's some data points that I, I think are really important to realize. Households and nonprofits net worth has increased about 20% since 2020. Now, a counter argument to that would be, well, that's not adjusted for income, meaning that a lot of that growth of net worth is taking place in the high income range and the people that already had stocks, bonds, and real estate. But that's exactly my point. This is going to continue in the sense that the United States government and central banks smashed a $6 trillion button when 2020 happened. Central banks around the world printed another $4 trillion. So there's $10 trillion slushing around the economic environment looking for yield. First, first it rushes into the bond market, then it rushes into the stock market, and then it works its way into real estate. Why? Because in place, $6 trillion in the bond market, no one bat an eye. You can place billions of dollars in the stock market, no one bat an eye. But man, if you start placing that money in real estate, it is going to move the needle and it's just getting started. So Net worth, all-time highs, 20% increase. Personal income for cap per capita increased significantly at or about at all-time highs on a per capita basis. Now, the first time I heard that information, I thought, okay, those are really high figures, but that could easily be manipulated if they were completely encumbered by debt financing, right? You can see a situation, hey, I got a $99 billion net worth or whatever, $10 million net worth. Turns out I only have a million dollars in net worth that I've leveraged to the moon. But the reality is we're actually at 40-year low in terms of debt to income ratios on a household basis. That is really, really compelling. At our all-time net worth, at our all-time highs in terms of savings, 
significant highs in terms of per income and uh, you know, historical lows in terms of debt, uh, debt service. These are very, very compelling metrics. And one of the reasons that I think there's a lot of runway here, um, especially in a couple asset classes. Yeah, that's great. Let, let me ask you this while we still have a little bit of time. I agree with you 100% in that I think this economy still has a lot of legs. Uh, and you talk about all these data points. Absolutely. What I, and I don't think anyone can control, and I'd love to get your intelligent input and maybe even like, have you dreamed of a scenario, the black swan, and not in terms of the economy, but of the thing that we can't control, which is the Fed doing something that none of us can actually predict or them manipulating the market in a way that really would destroy this. What would that be, right? Like, I think it's hard to argue against, hard to bet against the US economy, but what cannot be trusted <laughs> is the manipulation of a of a you know big government or whatever it is. Is that something to really be worried about? You think, in light of all of this, hunters like here's the here's the X factor though. Absolutely, I mean always, you know. But I so for context, I'm a big proponent of the Austrian school of economics. When it comes to what governments should do, I usually just if someone asks me, should the government, I just usually say no before I let them finish because that's just my intuition. And so I'm not here to talk about what the government should do. By the way, you know, a long time ago, I'm not gonna say the name. I had a 10 series podcast about what the government should do. And uh, it has not really seen the light of day, but I could do that for hours and hours. But eventually there was a point in my life where I recognized I can continue to do this podcast or I can find a way to intelligently participate and make my own you know, government for lack of a term in my personal life and right. develop my personal freedom through capitalism and grow my wealth to a point where I can make decisions based on my own intuition and capitalism has allowed me to do that. So that's not about what the government should and shouldn't do, but what they are doing is acting on their incentives. To a large degree, the central banks and the governments are intertwined now more so than ever. And I just don't see Volcker coming back and making interest rates 17 and 18% again. I think that the trajectory over the last 40 years, which by the way, I've, I've been doing this for 40 years, but apparently every decade, there's always been that question of when are interest rates going to go back to quote historical norms. And I think they're asking their own question. You know, I interviewed Ethan Pinner on my show, who's credited with inventing commercial mortgage-backed securities. And he said the same thing. He said, the question is not when are interest rates going to go back up? The question is, when are they going to go negative? <laughs> That's what I believe. I'm looking at the chart. The trend is down and to the right. And I see that the United States is one of the few countries in the world, and especially in the industrialized world, that has positive yielding bonds and interest rates. So I see Japan as being the future for that. I don't see the other thing happening with you know 15, 16%. However, you know, we invest based on downside protection, uh, going back to that supply and demand disequilibrium. So what happens if interest rates rise significantly? Well, then the rate caps that we've paid quarter million dollars will be hit. But I think that that would likely coincide with a flaming hot economy and inflation. It's difficult, and I haven't talked about this publicly, so you're kind of getting me out of my comfort zone, but just bear with me for a second. I can see a situation where rental rates are screaming, occupancies are screaming, unemployment is at historical lows, 
and they're ratcheting up interest rates trying to slow this thing down. I cannot see a situation where deflation is happening, rates are, rental rates are low, occupancy is low, and they're like, well, time to do it. 17% interest rate. Does that make sense, Ellis? Yeah, absolutely. And I think from a guy who's seeing a lot of deals, yeah, we're, we're very worried about rising. I say very worried. We are counting for rising interest rates. It's a fear. What is also, I think, not talked about enough is revenue growth is still through the roof right now. Like our comps change every day because in terms of, like you said, inflation, supply and demand disequilibrium. So it's, it's true in that, yes, inflation is, is rising, but alongside of a, a, a still very much, I would say, a booming, as you to repeat your word, economy. So there's, you know, I still think it's a great time to own real estate because it's not like you just said, high interest rates and stagnant growth. It's like, nope, fear of rising interest rates with an economy that is still growing. There's still a lot of revenue growth. Rent growth is happening uh, insanely. And, you know, we're in big markets, Dallas, Houston, Austin. Uh, San Diego. So, you know, we're seeing this across across the board. Hunter, I know you're always trying to provide huge value for your investors and this space. Uh, what's next? What can, what can we look forward to here? Well, these are like my ideas and everything. Um, this is like an amalgamation of some really high level conversations that I've had with a lot of people, many of whom disagree with me, some of whom agree with me, and some are far more bullish than me, and some are far more bearish than me. But this is a conversation that needs to be had right now. And so because everyone's asking this question, I decided to have a summit to get the question answered, which is what are we supposed to do? This $10 trillion tsunami is about to crash. How are we going to intelligently participate? And so I create a summit called the 100K to Invest Summit, which is like if you had $100,000, which niche makes the most sense in this economic environment right now? And it's a free summit. And you can upgrade for the VIP thing, which you totally should do, by the way. It's $97. You get lifetime access, et cetera. And I have some high-level people that all focus on one particular niche. So we talk about self-storage. What's the key with that right now? Multifamily, mobile home parks, Bitcoin mining, investing in RV parks, like a bunch of different strategies. And I let them do their kind of pitch for why it makes sense. And at the end of the day, it's a three-day summit. At the end of the summit you're going to have like a full A to Z playbook in all these different niches. You're going to feel, you know, what's appropriate for your strategy, where you are in your growth, et cetera. And I'm really excited about it. So everyone should go to it. 100K and the number is 100 and then K2invest.com. Check it out. You get a free ticket and then get the upgrade if you want to watch it forever. Awesome. 100K2invest.com. We'll put that in the show uh, notes. When is that happening? It is going to take place in a couple of weeks. So, okay, we'll have it on the Go site. to the website right now. Check sure, it out. Sure, you sure. guys get access to it. Yeah, by the time this produces, hunterkdoinvest.com. Guys, make sure you follow Hunter. He's got a great podcast, Cashflow Connections, and asimcapital.com. Hunter, as always, brother, grateful for your input in this space. And I hope you're right, man, because we're, we're also buying a lot of deals. And so, again, I I believe, I, you know, we're, we're on the same page here. And I, and I really appreciate your, uh, your detail and what you explained today. Anything else before we get out of here? Yeah, one more thing, and I've got to run. We are not spraying and praying. We are being very systematic with our strategic partnerships, and I suggest investors do the same. Yeah. Like, Alice, I know you are currently 
creating massive market advantage for yourself and your markets that you're participating in. The relationships that you've created over the last decade or so are starting to, like, you're really, you have a claim to why you are going to beat out your competitors. And I'm only investing with sponsors that I think that's the case. Because it's not just me that thinks this. There is all-time highs in terms of cash reserves and the largest private equity companies in the world. They're just waiting for a moment of a question mark to get in. And I think that that moment that they're waiting for is happening. Right I now. totally think they're so. They're going to figure it out. <laughs> yeah. So that's what I want you know, the message to be. Find mm -hmm. guys that you trust that you want to work with for decades and potentially generations and go all in on them. Don't spray and pray with your capital. Now is not the time. Yep. Great work. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, Hunter. Thanks again. We'll see you soon.